on Lumpen Radio. Good morning once again to another Sunday morning right here on Lumpen Radio. You are listening to I-94, and as always, I am your producer and co-host, Jamie Trecker. I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Good morning. And today we have a very special guest. Uh, this might be the first time... Uh, what, what's kind of the word for this? Is it... Um, when you uh, use family connections to... Uh, nepotism? Yeah, I was going to say this is probably... This probably, is the nepotistic special. This, this, could be the nep- <laughs> this is the nepotism special. We, we do have a, a actually a noted uh, Lambda Award-winning author, uh, the author of, we, we figured out it's either 23 or 24 books. Um, she has been writing since... Uh, Early 70s, right? 70, 76. Her name is Janice Law, but she's better known as Janice Law Trekker. She's actually my mother, uh, and she is in town, so we thought we would put her on the spot. Uh, she has written a series of books that are out now from Mysterious Press that feature Francis Bacon, but she has, as I mentioned, a very long career writing not only uh, mysteries uh, with a detective named Anna Peters, uh, but historical books, historical fiction, uh, and literary fiction. So welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. So we want to start off, um, I, I, this is one of the few shows that I've actually done no prep at all for because I've read <laughs> over the years these, these 24 books. Uh, and we do have some selections, uh, of course, read today as always by Shanna Van Volt and music from the International Anthem Archive. But I wanted to start out, uh, uh, Janice, and ask you, how did you start out writing? I mean, obviously, I, I grew up with you and I know your, your background intimately, but our listeners don't. And uh, I, I know that you've spent a great deal of time publishing, and it's it's a it's an incredibly long career. Twenty four books is a lot of books. It's amazing. Uh, I mean, it, that really is. And you you write short stories. You're published fairly continuously in Alfred Hitchcock and Ellery Queen. You you had a long career in newspapers. You worked for uh, you you've been published in the Hartford Current, the West Hartford News, uh, Parisian uh, film criticism, and all that. Tell us how first of all how you got interested in writing in the first place, and what drove you to write novels in particular, because it's a it's a fairly specialized pastime. Right. Well, I didn't want to be a writer at all. Um, I wanted to be a reader. It's so much easier. (laughs) And really, right through um, getting my master's, writing was tears and anguish. (laughs) It really was. It didn't come naturally to me at all. Um, Then I was uh, teaching. I was ill following a a rather bad uh, ectopic pregnancy. And as one does when you are sick, I started reading Pulp Fiction, I started reading mysteries, uh, Eric Ambler, The God of Suspense, Raymond Chandler, Agatha Christie, you know, all the the big names of the 70s and 60s and so on, Dorothy Sayers. And then I got through them and I began to get down to the bottom of the heap. And I started to say to my husband, this is awful stuff. (laughs) This is really poor. I could do as well. And my husband, being a natural-born, fast, never-edits writer, said, well, why don't you try? And um, I actually did. I didn't start on short stories, as most people do who want to write novels. I started right in with novels, and I picked mystery novels because um, they had a better shape. You know, you have a shape, and finding a shape in writing was always what was hard for me. It still is. Uh, You'll notice the novels are kind of picaresque. They're chases, extended chases, uh, from one thing to another, rather than a a really shapely suspense or really shapely whodunit. Um, I started, I sold my first one. That was in the good old days when you wrote and you sent your work off, and people published it. And you didn't have to promote it. 
Where did you send it to? I, I sent it to an agent, and she sent it first. It was turned down by the first house, and then it went to Houghton Mifflin, which was one oh, of the wow. really good houses yeah. of the time. Yeah. Uh, it's not like that anymore. <laughs> it was, um, it really was, as they called it the gentleman's profession. And it was all very low-key. They didn't pay you much. But they took you out to lunch, and we had a small child at that time. They gave you free children's books. It was very much lower key. I was very stupid. Had I been smart, I would have networked. I would have gone to writers' conferences. I would have joined the Mystery Writers of America. Um, I was terminally shy. The very thought of going to a conference where I would have to schmooze with people just made my stomach hurt. I didn't know you were supposed to do that. I thought writers wrote, and you send it off, and uh, that was not true. So um, while I've had a long career, and it was never more than a nice part-time job, which is about what most writers make. We had an event here last night. One of the guys at one of the bands works for Penguin, and we were actually talking about the publishing industry mm-hmm. today and he was telling me how political it is and that you know if you don't get out there and you know and you also we were talking about with bookstores we we, we work with the books where we do our events at Pilsen Community and they were, he was saying well you have to have this much new fiction versus used for us to have a rep and all these things and I always it's it's doing this and learning more and more about the publish industry, publishing industry has been disheartening for me because it, it makes me a little bit sad. Like, you're you know, glad you're a librarian. Yeah, yeah. I'm, not, I'm glad I don't have to yeah. sell and publish and right. promote things. I, and, you know, a lot of the indie presses are great too, but, you know, it's just the... Isn't that what an agent is for? To do the schmoozing and the, and the selling and the promoting? Not anymore. Yeah. Um, I, I had a wonderful agent who was older than me, unfortunately, and retired. And my next one just seemed to send stuff out. That's all she did was send it out. There's another aspect, um, since you're talking to a woman mystery writer, I will tell you that there was a lot of prejudice, even in the 70s. For example, my first book went into a second printing, The Anna Peters. It was an Edgar nominee that was for the Best big First payoff, Novel, right? The Big Payoff. Yeah. Oh, I have that, too. That's the one I remember I told you I had two of your books. That's okay, the other one. Yeah, that was my, my very first and um, my agent attempted to sell paperback rights because paperback rights was one of the ways you did make money. You got a modest advance, and then you hoped to sell paperback rights. And one of the big houses, I forget whether it was Macmillan or, or who it was that did paperback, and she said, you know, we have this novel, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, they said, we have Amanda Cross. We have our woman mystery writer. <laughs> there was one to a customer. So I've, I've had an interesting trajectory. When I started out, there was sex discrimination, and now at the end of my career, there's age discrimination. <laughs> okay. It was my fate, clearly. <laughs> and, of course, you, one of the books that you wrote, was it the big payoff that came out when the printers went on strike, or was that the next one? Um, I, I don't know. It was a Gemini trip. One of them came out, and then I had one that I sold to Macmillan, to Michelle Slung, who is, a, is now a, is one, of the, one of the very ancient and respected um, editors. And she got my contract ready. She went in to have it signed, and they said, we're closing down that whole division. <laughs> and I, it cursed the book. I never sold it again. What, what, what was that book? 
Um, it was, I forget the name of it now. It was uh, set around the sports world. It was a model and a um, sports reporter. Oh, okay. uh, my husband has been for 60 I, years, 60 years uh, a newspaper sports reporter. And he's one of the reasons I think I was um, so lacking in confidence with my own writing because on one of my first dates with him, we went to a game. Where else would we go? Circus Chiefs, uh, right? No, this was, this was, I think, in Hartford. But anyway, we went to the game that he was covering. What sport? And uh, Probably would have been ice hockey. No, I think it was baseball. Baseball, okay. In but Hartford? It, it, um, would have been a Legion Would have been a Legion Okay, an American Legion game. And in those days, there was no computer, no, no internet. And when he finished the game, he had to call the story in because of the time sequence. He couldn't go back to the current and write it as he, as he would have. And it was very disconcerting. He had his little reporter's notebook. He calls up, he gets them on the phone, and he begins dictating without notes, including punctuation, right off the top of his head. And I thought, oh, I can't. <laughs> Of course, he learned that, though. There was a guy, I remember he told me when I was growing up, there was a guy that when we were in Scotland, it was a reporter for the Dundee Courier or the Dundee Post that we would see him at Dundee United and and, and Dens Park games, and he was he never took a note. He seemed to be half in the bag. But he would call, you know, to, in those days, uh, after a game, they would print in Scotland a kind of a late afternoon edition that would have the sports story in it. And so you'd be up at the park, and you'd, I guess you need to know a little geography, but there's a, a stadium in Dundee, Scotland, that's on the top of a hill, and the, the train station's quite a long way down. So you'd walk up and down this massive hill. By the time you got to the train station, the edition would be there. That, I mean, that's, right. that's how quickly they wow. printed it and ripped it out. This guy, though, at the end of the game, and I, I cannot remember his name. I'll have to ask Jerry. Um, he he would dictate everything with perfect punctuation, no notes, nothing, and he'd be yelling at these people. And that, <laughs> I think, is where Dad took some inspiration mm-hmm. from because this this guy was, you know, yeah. lights out. I mean, it really yeah. was. He was really a stylist. Yeah. And it was amazing. Never seemed to just, you know, right off the top of his head. And uh, one of the key things when you do that, he would always have on second note. You know, it's newspaper style. Once you name a guy, you don't use his first name again. Right, just last name. It's just last name. And he never dropped that. He always knew where yeah. it was. So. Well, your dad could do that as a teenager. He could yeah. do. But he did have notes. He always had his. So you saw this and you were like, that, that's how you do it. If I can't do that, I can't do it. <laughs> well, I'd had trouble writing. Um but then once I started, um, you know, fiction, it's true, you are making it all up. And um, Although I have a, it's funny, fiction, I'm really stupid. I start, I have the start in some cases. For example, one of my favorite books was called Under Orion. And that, and that was, was a, an Anna Peters mystery. That was an Anna Peters, and it was a gift. I've got to tell you about the gift, and then I'll tell you how it started. We went to Trier, which is um, one of the crossing points of the Rhine in Germany. In fact, our local butcher told me he crossed the Rhine with whatever unit he was in in the Second World War right there. That was Mort? That was Mort the yeah. butcher. It was, um, their motto is before Rome Trier. That's how ancient it was. Huh. And it had an intact, not the top of the amphitheater like the Colosseum in Rome, but the underneath. There was this sort of ruin of, of seats, then a big grassy area, and then you went down where they kept the gladiators, where the animals oh. had kept, where the, you know, this special effects stuff. And there was water because, of course, it had flooded over time. And you were on a catwalk, and I thought, oh, you know, <laughs> somebody dies right here. It's perfect. 
And uh, when I got home, I was doing Anna's, and one line came into my head, and it was on Friday, Harry invited the crazy man to dinner. And it's, it's Out of nowhere. Out of nowhere, and that was enough, you know? <laughs> so it's, the mind is very strange. Now, when I do nonfiction, it's all planned out. But fiction, um, when I was writing one a year, basically, um, when I'd go to bed at night, I'd say, now I need the next five pages. I need to know what happens to Anna in wherever she was. And once I got into the book, lo and behold, there it would be the next morning. But that was all I'd know. How did you get involved with uh, Mysterious Press? I, I, I've been to the uh, Mysterious Bookshop in Manhattan. It's great, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, it's uh, it's really. It sounds cool. cool. I I've, I didn't know about it before I read. Well, my stepkid lives in Manhattan, so we spend ah. a great deal of time there. And they live just, they live by the, <clears throat> by the east, just north of the Lower East Side by the river. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Right? By oh, the, the Hudson, Hudson Yards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And. My wife and I do a lot of walking, and I saw that one day, and I'm like, let's go check this place mm-hmm. out. And um, I was actually looking for um, an author who wrote very weird mysteries. He's from here, and I can't think of his name. He used to live in the same apartment building as Capone. Oh, I know you're talking about, and I can't remember his name. Yeah, he writes these really, like, you know, the two-headed yeah. monkey. You know, just these very <laughs> strange. This is all made up on the fly. But at any rate, I thought that was a really <clears> – <throat> until – we, we were going to have you on the show. I never knew they had their own press. And uh, how did you get involved with that? Well, desperation, actually. Okay. Um, <laughs> I've always been a hard sell. The people that like my work really like it, but there's never been enough of them, alas. And my, when my really good old agent retired, I had written um, the first bacon, and I sent it to my new agent, who... I thought was useless in time. I have gone through a number of agents, and I don't know why, because I'm so pleasant and understanding. <laughs> but I go through them because I guess I don't listen always to what they want me to do. Okay. But anyway, um, she had sent it out, and nobody wanted it. And I thought, these are pretty good. This is kind of strange. And uh, finally, I left my agent, and I started querying. Nobody wanted this. I think... I realized later it was because of the gay character. I cannot get a really? yeah. I cannot get a book author gig in my area except at our own little library. Right. And and the so, Janice mentioned Bacon, the first Bacon novel. I don't think we said it yet, but there's a whole series of there's novels. Six, yeah. That's right. Five are out. She right? wrote with six are out, and oh, I should is the last one out? I should explain um, that. The first three were the adult bacon. Uh, it's, the first one was Fires of London. It started with the Blitz, right. where the real bacon was, believe it or not, an, an air raid preparedness warden. Uh, the man yeah, suffered A-O-P. horrible asthma. We should back up and tell people who Francis Frick, Bacon is. Not the father of modern science. Right. Francis Bacon not, was a famous painter. That's right. The father of modern science would actually be a rather good character, too. But this Francis Bacon was Anglo-Irish. Um, he was born in uh, Ireland. His father was English. He was a Boer War uh, vet. He ran a third-rate racing stable. And his son was allergic to almost all animals. I'll tell you, the one thing I found difficult about writing this character, it wasn't that he was gay. 
It wasn't that he was promiscuous. It wasn't that he was an alcoholic. It was that he didn't like animals. <laughs> and he hated the country because he was always sick in it. So he was, he did not, he was not taken for the military, but he was air raid preparedness warden. He was at that point just starting his um, painting career. He was living with his old nanny and his lover. Uh, his nanny was a remarkable person. And she was the reason that I thought I could do him, despite you know many, many differences in our experience and outlook. Um, I grew up downstairs in an upstairs, downstairs setup, a big estate, horses, grooms. Uh, at one time, they had, I think, five or six in household staff. It was reduced in my era. And your father was household staff? My, no, my father did was the chauffeur, and he did all the carpentry on the estate, and he did the grounds. Right, grounds. Yeah. The previous estate, Dad had been hired strictly to do the roses. You can imagine how fancy that place was. Oh, my was. goodness. Where is this? This was in Millbrook, New York. That was Millbrook, New York, where... Um, I used it as the setting for time lapse, as a matter of fact. Yeah, it was a very strange way to grow up. Um, during the war, uh, we lived on Long Island on the estate. I believe it was the people who were A.B. Dick copiers now, but it was the Dick estate. They had a family compound, two huge houses. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought it was uh, McLean's with Alcoa. No, no. McLean's were uh, in Millbrook. But this family, there were two of them, Big Boss and Little Boss, two great big houses. Um, the estate, it, it, this was the wartime, remember, they raised their own pigs, their own sheep, their own chickens, their own ducks. They wanted, my dears, for nothing. They had uh, a really interesting mixture. The cook and butler were Finnish. Um, my dad was a Scot. Arthur Barber was English. Uh, then there was the German couple who were big with the Bund. They were big Hitler fans. Uh, it was an wow. interesting outfit, you know. So then when we went up to Millbrook, um, I was able to observe nannies and rich children. And I knew I knew what yeah. he was about with his nanny. And you, you think it was that sort of odd, but you need, with any character, you need a way in. And for, uh, for Chicago listeners who have been to the Art Institute, one of my favorite paintings in that um, museum is, is Francis Bacon. Yeah, with it's the Pope triplet, The right? figure with meat. Oh, it's right, the two right, sides right. of beef the behind beef. this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, that's Francis Bacon. Well, that Francis Bacon. He loved painting flesh. He loved painting meat. There's, there's like a figure of death behind a lot yeah. of his paintings. There, and a lot of pictures of the Pope, too. The Screaming Pope, yes. Now, the Screaming Pope was actually an amalgamation of two images. He was very fond of, he was ahead of his time in that he liked to work from photos, but distorted them. Um, the Screaming Pope came from uh, Eisenstein's uh, The Battleship Potemkin, oh, the, the famed Odessa Steps. In the Odessa Steps, the, I guess it's the gunboat fires on the mob. And one of the people in the mob is a nanny, ta-da, an old lady with glasses and the baby carriage. And when the carriage is hit or she's hit, she screams. And also both Hitler and Mussolini, he was fascinated by them with their big hats and their screaming at everything. And that was amalgamated with the famous Velasquez portrait of Pope. I'm now pulling a blank. Pius, Which Pope? something or other, wasn't Pope it? Pius or Julius or one of them. Uh, that image was amalgamated, the screaming 
the screaming pope. Well, speaking of, since you requested uh, that the voice actually do some readings, absolutely, we, we should actually play something because this this show is flying by. Yeah. So let's. This is a seg- uh, selection from Nights in Berlin, which is the second Francis Bacon. Am I correct? No, the it's the second trilogy. The second trilogy. I had to go back till he was seventeen. Was bounced out of his home, and was sent with his uncle. To, who was a military vet to be made a man of in Berlin. Well, that well, turned out in a very strange <laughs> this, way. This is, this is going to go bad quickly, but this is a selection. We're, we're listening, obviously, to I-94. We're talking with the author, Janice Law. This is a selection from her uh, Francis Bacon mystery series, Nights in Berlin. We'll be right back. I shivered in the damp breeze, which carried the oily smell of engine smoke. Everything I owned was back at the Adlon, and despite Uncle Lasting's warnings, I was tempted to return. On the other hand, those had been real shots, and my uncle's schemes, which had seemed light-hearted, if not exactly harmless, now appeared sinister. I kept looking over my shoulder, expecting the police, or, maybe worse, Uncle Lasting's mysterious enemies. Should one or both of them find me, I'd be sunk. The hotel was another danger, although I wasn't clear what they did to the people who couldn't pay for a room. Potato peeling, some other onerous kitchen duty, a quick trip to jail. On the other hand, loitering in the Hauptbahnhof was suspicious too. I wouldn't care to pick up a soliciting charge on my very first night of independence. No indeed, especially when the clientele at that time of night was dubious. When a large man with a mutilated nose and sores on his face grabbed my arm and started whispering, I hightailed it for the door. There were cabs at the curb, and telling myself that no one at the hotel could yet know that my uncle had vanished, I held up my hand. At the Adlon, I caught my breath and walked in boldly. Good knocked, Dr. Bacon. That was Elbert on the desk, elderly but still stout and handsome in his jacket with the gold braids. Good knocked, Elbert, I said and collected my key, all normal. The lobby was as luxurious and smart, the elevators as smooth, and the carpeting as rich, the decor as heavy with guilt. With a little effort, I could almost imagine that I'd been asleep in the big four-poster all night and that my rascally uncle was off courting some rich woman or propositioning some pretty boy instead of fleeing a murder charge. Not to mention leaving me penniless and probably implicated. Whoever had shot, or been shot, I'd almost certainly delivered the weapon. Upstairs, the smoke from his cigars lingered along with the fading smell of good breakfast and furniture polish, but I wasn't feeling sentimental. I immediately turned out his pants and jacket pockets for small change and collected the several pairs of gold cufflinks that were in his case. Other useful advice from Uncle Lastings. Carry gold. There's always a pawn shop. He had some silver-mounted brushes, too, and I put them in my own case and threw in my clothes. What else? What else? Camera. He had a camera, and I found it. A decent Leica. Valuable. I hung its case around my neck. What else? Some documents from the society and a few pamphlets. No profit there. An extra pair of shoes that I was tempted to take for the second-hand market, but no. Safest to leave Uncle Lasting's clothes, suitcase, and shaving stuff. The longer the hotel thought that he was coming back, the safer I'd be. I glanced at the bed, warm and comfortable and full of pleasant memories. I could sleep till dawn, I thought, and no one would be the wiser. But no, to leave at dawn would be suspicious. To leave now was by no means unprecedented. 
Janice, I, uh, I read a different bacon mystery. I read mm-hmm. The Prisoner of Riviera. Right. And there were a couple, um, so Francis Bacon narrates the books, and uh, there were a couple lines he had that, that I was really intrigued by. W- one was, I like extreme emotions, rage, lust, ecstasy, and I like them pictorially, too. And the other one was, because I was both badly and briefly educated, and then the sentence continues, I just wanted to know what kind of research you did you do it specifically for the novel, or did you know a lot about his life already? Well, I had read the very good biography. I think the man's name is Michael Pettiet. Pettiet? Um, librarian would know. Uh, it's the standard now. It's, <laughs> it's the standard biography. I, it got, came into our library, which is small but excellent. I read it, and I was immediately, although I don't really approve of using real people as detectives, I thought, oh, you know. I could do this. <laughs> then I said, no, I can't. You know, what do I know about a, a gay man who likes rough trade and is wildly promiscuous and whose nanny vets his paying customers? You know, this, this is pretty far from my experience. But, but you are a painter. We should mention that you're also a painter. An I'm artist. a semi-serious painter, yes. I really wanted to be a painter. That was, it's something, I, it comes more naturally. I could draw well before I could read and write. You can tell in the writing the way you describe You've had exhibitions in Chicago, so you're, you're more than semi-serious. Yes, and you, you, I can't tell you what clout you get in eastern Connecticut when you say, well, I've had a solo show in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to remember that. I was going to say, too, if you, next time you're in town, we can book you at the library, my library. So that you, would be delightful. Yeah, I, I was just thinking delightful. of that because if they won't have you anywhere else, you can come, <laughs> you can come to Chicago. Do that would be delightful, yes. You, can, you and, can say you had a solo show at the Daily Library in Chicago. Right. This is cloud. Yeah. That is cloud. That's cloud. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, we're, we've got to go actually to take a commercial. We might as well do it right now. And then when we come back, we're going to have another selection actually uh, from the Francis Bacon Mysteries. Uh, but uh, we'll be right back after this short interlude to uh, remind everybody who helps pay for the station. You're listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM. This is Lumpen Radio I-94. We'll be back after this. The seller of the sports videos stood at a rickety folding table with a large cardboard box underneath. A handwritten sign promised any DVD you want in rambling purple letters. The man was as tall as a pro basketball center but thin, almost gaunt, and very dark so that his large eyes gleamed above the bold cheekbones and the wide, and to Frank's mind, somewhat predatory nose. I have what you need, he said, revealing big teeth, one of which had been mended in gold. Frank couldn't place his accent, but doubtless somewhere in Africa. He wondered what the vendor had been there, soldier, lawyer, merchant, doctor. Somewhat to his chagrin, witch doctor popped up in Frank's mind too, which was nonsense, since the man was out selling modern tech and dressed like half the city in an open shirt, slacks, and sandals. I got basketball, I got baseball, all big games, college too, right back to 1963 Cincinnati Loyola game NCAA. You like that? He tipped his head to one side as if considering whether Frank was a collegiate basketball fan. Old stuff, Frank said, although he hadn't meant to reply. It was a mistake to engage the vendors. Some of them tried to wear you down, and if you didn't buy anything, they became surly about their wasted effort. Oh, more recent, and not basketball. I think, my man, you more the ice hockey fan, yes? He had a lilting and somehow insinuating voice despite his extraordinary height and what seemed to Frank an increasingly imposing presence. 
Frank agreed. Rangers fan, the vendor said, nodding his ebony head sagely. Great days gone, but not too long gone. Too long for me, said Frank, starting to edge away. There was a woman with watercolors of the Brooklyn Bridge and of a city park that with a little charity could be called attractive. He might buy one and brighten up his apartment, which, without Claire's prints and posters, seemed drab and somehow provisional. But then, everything was provisional without Claire. You need this, then, said the vendor. He bent down and pulled a DVD from the cardboard box. It struck Frank that the man had reached in blind, and he was surprised to see that Rangers v. Devils Eastern Conference Final 1994 was printed in marker on the plastic case. It'll take you back, man. You'll be right there, cheering the Rangers and Mr. Messier in the big game. Ten dollars, cheap at twice the price. Take you back where you want to go. The whites of his eyes seemed unnaturally brilliant, and Frank felt a little shiver, but whether of fear or excitement or just the sudden breeze, he did not know. Well, he said and hesitated. You don't like it? You bring it back. I'll give you eight dollars, two dollar rental, right? Someone else will want this, never worry, but I think it's for you. He spoke with a conviction that unsettled Frank. Just the same, he opened his wallet and handed over the bill, though most likely the tape would be blank or something else, and certainly the vendor would never welcome its return. You're not going to be sorry, the dark man said. Rangers v. Devils, Stanley Cup, 1994 is pure magic. He gave another brilliant smile and turned towards a new potential customer. All sports. I have what you need. Any game. Any game at all. And welcome back. You are listening to I-94 here on WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. You just heard a selection, actually, that was from a short story in uh, Alfred Hitchcock Mystery Magazine by our featured author today. She is with us, Janice Law. Welcome back, Janice. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Uh, and also, we want to thank, of course, International Anthem Recording Company. That was uh, Tamika Reed, and our reader, of course, is Shanna Van Volt. Uh, before the break, uh, we were talking about the Francis Bacon series of books, which is your latest series. Um, I did want to kind of go back, actually, uh, and touch on something you mentioned at the very start of the show um, about the shape of books. Um, structure in books, and especially in fiction, is one of the most difficult things to do, and I know you have some very interesting thoughts on writing action in books. And I kind of wanted to talk to you a little bit about that because, um, as you know, I, I happen to, because I'm your son, uh, I happen to have a large collection of Doctor Who books, mm-hmm. which uh, are a particularly interesting piece of genre fiction because they're nothing but action. They're novelizations from the TV, but the entire show, you know, it's for children, but it, it basically is nothing but action. And I know you've read some of these and you have a take on that as well. I just want to, is that how you got into space opera, Jamie? Was that it, like it the probably precursor? is because I, mean, I grew up with Doctor Who watching <laughs> space it. operas are mostly action, aren't they? They're almost all, yeah, a yeah. lot of them. Yeah. Okay. A lot of them. And, you know, I grew up. I can't, I've never read one, but I thought you said that mm. in one of our earlier shows. Yeah. I mean, doc, I watched them um, growing up when, when we were in St. Andrews in Scotland, uh, my Aunt Mary had an apartment and she had a television uh, and I would watch them at a very young age. And they were very, if you're a kid, I mean, even though they're in rubber suits and stuff, you know, I oh, look yeah. back at them and they're hokey, but they were they were scary. They were scary. And they were entertaining. It was a big thing. Yeah. But I, I know you've read those and I know you write a lot of action in these books. This is a, a kind of a sustained chase in a, in a way. So I wanted to get your thoughts on, on writing that and, and how difficult it was. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Most of my mysteries are uh, extended chases. I mean, there's only so many patterns, you know. Uh, 
And the, the thing that I, I do like to have besides uh, action, obviously, is a kind of blend of, uh, I guess, noir and humor. The, the one thing I, I do object to are books where there is absolutely no humor, no hope, no light. Joe Nesbo comes to mind. I don't care for his work anymore. But, um, yeah, I think action is quite an art. Now, um, there are books, a lot of popular thrillers are basically just action, you know, military hardware and action. Um, mine are not. What I find is that action is very difficult to write. Um, particularly with the sort of book that these are where they're, they're chases, but they're character-driven, and they're kind of eccentric. So you want the action to be interesting, but you don't want it to overwhelm the rest of, of the book. And I, I find it's, it's difficult. You know, you find even people fighting, uh, keeping your pronouns straight. You know, you, you can't, I hit him, he hit me. You know, how much of this can you do, particularly <laughs> if it's third person? You know, it's a little different with, with Bacon. Um, there's also the realism. I, I tend to think my books are quite realistic in a way in that there are no supermen, no superwomen. Uh, most of the time, uh, people are muddling through, which I suspect is how most of, most of life is. So... Um, when I set up something like there's in Nights in Berlin, there's a fight um, between the young, I guess he's a sort of proto-Nazi. He's one of the, the, there were many, many youth groups in Germany at this time. It, the, the Germans, I guess, to this day are very fond of the outdoors, outdoor sports, outdoor activities. And Francis is quite enamored of this um, absolutely gorgeous Oscar, who's a member of the group. And it's rather sad because Oscar's gay, but he hopes when they take over, when, you know, when the right wing is in charge, he'll be a different person. And uh, Bacon thinks to himself, the leopard cannot change its spots, you know. But they, anyway, they have a fight. Um, they're attacked by a rival right wing group. This, Germany was a mess. You had reds, you had whites, you had fascists, you had... The, the brown shirts just starting. You had a group called the Vikings. You had just a melange of people all, all hating each other and trying to get power. And uh, I, I wondered how he was going to defend himself. Oscar defends himself with a, a big heavy metal basket from the street. And Bacon um, has a cane that he's gotten and he stabs the guy in the back with. Um, Semi-realistic. Uh, it fit. It was enough. Not too long with action for me. Uh, earlier, he had, he had been sharing a, a room with one of the lads who worked in the hotel, the Hotel Adlon of um, glorious memory where his uncle Lastings had put him up in real luxury. Um, now he's staying in their house, and their, his, the boy's father is a broken-down war veteran. He'd been on both Eastern and Western Front. You can imagine his condition. He is a flaming alcoholic, and he sits near the stove with his bayonet. And when he gets drunk enough, he thinks it's time to go over the top. This is First World War vet. And uh, Bacon, at one point, uh, rescues himself by stabbing something, someone with a, this uh, bayonet. So it's more a matter of placing things that are useful and um, um, I don't, I don't know what I could say beyond that. It's hard. Is Action's it, hard. Is it, 
all by feel. You know, you while you're writing, what you feel is exciting is is the proper fit, and then when you reread, you kind of give it the same test. Or did did you look at other writers the way they set up? Their no, although before I wrote my first book, I made a very careful study of two books, one of which was Eric Ambler. Eric Ambler, to my mind, is still the god of suspense. Nobody has been better than his early novels. Sad to say, I don't know who that is. Oh, Journey oh, into Fear. Get yeah. Journey into Fear. It's it is classic. a classic. I haven't read him either. Oh, you oh. must. And there's so little brutality in it. He can get more tension out of somebody trying to hide a little film canister than most people can get out of, you know, a 50-body count massacre. He is absolutely a genius. His, his, uh, his first publisher declared it was a better sort of rubbish that he was writing. When did he write? Um, this would have been 40s, I think, is pre-war. Oh, yeah. okay. Eric Ambler, he wrote for a long time. I don't think the later ones that got longer, you know, his books... Big books have had to get bigger and bigger and more padded, but the early ones are absolutely brilliant. And I took some colored pencils, and I marked out exposition, one color, and next paragraph, you know, dialogue, a different color, action, and a third color, and I really looked at how it was put together. I think I did a Dorothy Sayers, too. And that was my sole training in literary novel construction. I have a totally left field question for everyone here um we talked about a book on thursday um about chicago called the cliff dwellers and then there was in time lapse the book i read it's one of the anna peters both of those books compared someone to balzac and i know nothing oh you haven't been to the museum of modern art in new york I have. You have. They have one of the famed Rodin Balzacs. Okay. He had done a memorial to Balzac, who was, he was the French Dickens. He wrote a huge okay. cycle of novels about Paris. Yeah, the comedy it, you mean? The human comedy. Uh, they, so characters show up in different ones. I've it heard of him and work. I've seen his books. I've just, okay. I didn't know what the, the like when you say... Jamie is like Balzac. I don't know what that. He's he had a the Rodin. Who knows what Balzac now really looked like? We think of the Rodin, a big squarish face, very powerful, not handsome. Okay. But very powerful. Rodin did two: one a nude figure of him sort of striding forward, and one of him dressed in a cloak, with this massive head. That's the one that's in the Museum of Modern Art in New York. It used to be outdoors in the courtyard, but it's all been changed since. But if you go on the internet and you look up Rodin's Balzac, you will get. Okay, so it's a physical descriptor? It's a physical descriptor. I just. I forget now whether that referred to something after 20 years I've forgotten. I have it marked. Let me find it while you guys continue. Yeah, yeah Chris, you had to, that was actually one of the things we were talking about off the air. You, you've written so much that you've kind of forgotten some of these books. Well, and the fact that my memory for names was seriously damaged many years ago. Yeah. Um, I have trouble with names. Here it is. It says, um, in cities, ignorance of one's neighbors can count as bliss. In the country, every man is a Balzac. And quiet monotony is relieved by gossip, genealogy, and speculative psychology. Balzac, in this case, as the chronicler of the society. Gotcha. Okay. When I was growing up, um, the old washerwoman, who my Protestant dad used to take to Mass every Sunday, um, 
had was on a party line. This poor old woman was pumping water by hand, by the way, for her washing. She really was a washerwoman doing it by hand. She was on the party line. The party line was a great source of joy for her because she listened in to everybody's conversations. I don't know if a party line exists anymore. That would, that would I don't a, think so. A party, a party line, for people that don't know, was a, a telephone line that was shared That's by right. people in the in the old days. It was a landline. Uh, I guess the maybe a, an internet message board would be the equivalent today. Uh, but you could listen in in real time. Well, I mean, you, you, know? you can do that in an internet message board, I guess, yeah. too. Just plug into the switchboard and you listen to Yeah, yeah. No, you picked up your phone and other people would be on. And it was quite annoying if you wanted to make yeah. a call. Yeah. Somebody's blithering on and on and on about, you know, but you get the, all the gossip. Yeah. <laughs> right. It was, a, it was a shared phone line when, when yeah. you you – you didn't always get to use it because it was cheaper. A party line was cheaper. Oh, well, okay. it was the only thing you could get. Was it? Oh, yeah, oh, in many cases. Oh, yeah, mm. yeah. At least at the farm, the, the um, household had one, but then the help was sharing one. So. Oh. You know, my, my grandmother's family were farmers in Michigan, and I believe, I remember my grandma talking about a party line. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I also want to go back just to, to talk also more about the work. You mentioned something pretty interesting, which was that – you actually had a hard time getting people to read and buy this book because Francis Bacon was a gay character. And yet you won a major award for this book. You, you won the Lambda Literary Award for, for Best Gay Mystery. And you were nominated, I think, for another. For uh, two more, yeah. For two more. What, th- this seems strange in, in this day and age when gay marriage is legal in the United States. Now, it was a long time coming, but it, it seems that the culture in the United States has shifted so rapidly. And yet I'm hearing you say that even so, it hasn't shifted as far as we might like to think, I guess. Well, I guess that's my assumption. Now, Hampton's a little different. Hampton has quite a number of gay couples. And the library, since I'm on the library board, they felt, I guess, they had to invite me anyway. But the, <laughs> as uh, one of the few authors in Hampton, perhaps. <laughs> uh, we've had several authors in Hampton, including Edwin Way Teal, very distinguished author, nature writer. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's a small portion, however, of Hampton. Yeah. Well, I think the area, well, Eastern Connecticut went for Trump, need I say more. Um, and I, I think there's still people maybe... Some libraries are nervous, you know, do we want to bring someone in? They don't know what I'm like, and she writes about gay, gay people, and, you know. And, and Francis was disreputable, let's face it. He was not, you know, he was not your typical library chat visitor. I would he? hope that your library would stick with the American Library Association's Freedom of Information Act. But we certainly do. Yeah, but yeah. it's just, I, I know, you know, in these smaller communities, people get outraged about things that, to us in Chicago, are, you know, it's just part of life and right. we don't really think I'm about it much. I'm trying to think of uh, gay characters in mainstream fiction. I'm drawing a total blank. There aren't too many. And you have to remember the Lambda Award is given by the Lambda Society. It is a a gay society, and I thought it was rather nice of them to give it to me, because that's not really promoting a young gay writer, right. which is what they're right. they're there to do. So it was really very nice and gracious of them. Well, I was thinking the people that come to mind are Gary Indiana and Dennis Cooper, and Dennis Cooper is one of those humorless bleak. <laughs> yes. it's about as bleak as it gets. So yeah. you probably D- didn't he just pass away? I don't know. I think he I think he did. Yeah, his stuff is yeah brutal, and that's coming from me. So. 
And of course, we, we actually should talk, you know, your first detective was Anna Peters. That's uh, and right. that was unusual having a female lead detective. This was before what, V.I. Warshawski and uh, Sarah Paretsky and uh, uh, some of the other more modern ones. I'm, I'm blanking on the New Jersey um, bounty hunter. Oh, said, is that Stephanie Plum? Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm blank. Is that Ivanovich? Janet Ivanovich. Janet yeah, Ivanovich, yeah. Yes. Yeah. A the, staple of libraries. These, yes. were all, these were all much later. What? Was it difficult to get traction with with Anna Peters, who was a, a, a kind of a private investigator working with Harry in the in the 1970s? The big payoff for, for those people that don't know was about uh, misdeeds at an oil company, which could, right. which is white collar crime. It, it could actually be very uh, topical today. That's right. She was um, actually, I think, maybe beat Vi Vershkovsky by a year as the first blue collar female investigator. Before that, they were all people like uh, Amanda Cross's Kate Feisler, was that her name? You know, they were um, definitely the upper class. They had connections. They could call the chief of police, or, you know. Um, Anna, yeah, Anna was having trouble paying her bills in this one. That's in, right. In well, in the big payoff, she was a blackmailer. She found her boss was doing things in the oil company she didn't like. She needed money, and she didn't have any compunction about um, holding him up for some. Um, that hurt me a little bit. Some The British did not like the idea of a blackmailing detective, although they bought the books and were snotty about them anyway, <laughs> uh, you know. But I mean, that, that actually, there's a, not to, not to interrupt, but I mean, in Raymond Chandler and uh, Ross McDonald, uh, oh, yeah. Lou Archer was not above blackmailing people either. Uh, they were male. Well, I guess, yeah. And Anna, um, Anna then developed, I didn't think I was going to write more than one, and of course, as time went on, she developed, um, she became better educated and uh, but she'd been a secretary, and that was inspired by Watergate. When Watergate was on, I kept thinking, some lowly, underpaid secretary knows all about this stuff, you know? And Anna then became, she was directly inspired by Watergate. You were living in Scotland at the time? No, but we had started to go back. All my people are Scots. Mom and Dad emigrated separately right after World War I. Um, that was something else that I had in common with Bacon, by the way. We were both raised by Edwardians, uh, which was sort of interesting. But um, no, we, we started, um, actually too bad after mom died, going back for the summer because I had bad allergies and Jamie had asthma. And we used to rent what were then cheap rooms from the university. And we'd spend the summer there. We had bikes. We went everywhere by bike. It was great. I just wanted to... Um read a little description that I this I love descriptions um, and <laughs> I was laughing but you were talking about a farm town that was becoming um, you know touristy quaint and it said the village was a farm town going suburban with chic spreading like leprosy <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know and then it, it goes on to describe the you know the quaint tractors in the window and, and things like that and I just that to me um, the way that, that that description was written, like I could just, I it gave me an instant picture of what we were looking oh, at, good. You know, like a, you know, a South Haven or or, or something <laughs> like that, but in a farm setting. And I just, um, I'm a big fan of is is, am I, is that the right terminology descriptor? I mean, is there? Sure. Any, yeah, there's not like a literary term. I don't Probably. Know. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that is it. 
Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I think, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll figure it out someday. But anyway, I, I just, uh, I always bring up, because there'll be certain things, and I think it's really sometimes, you know, when you're talking about writing action, sometimes it's really hard to describe something, you know, in, in an accurate way. And I, I just... Um, every once in a while, and I'll be reading something, I'll be like, hee hee, that's great. You know, and I just, I just want to point that one out. So. Uh, are, are you continuing the, the Bacon series, Jim? No, no, no. I, I could have stopped after the third one, which was Nights in Tangier, which was, I think, maybe the best. Um, he, that's after Nan is dead. He's taken up with the man he fell in love with, who was another war vet. He was an ex-RAF man, This the real man. Um, a sexual sadist, uh, a gifted musician, a terminal alcoholic. Um, he wound up dying in Tangier. He was working for drinks, playing a piano in a bar, and he never got, uh, you know, he never got ahead. He was always drinking up more than he was earning playing. Um, but that book, I thought, was the best. But then I really liked the character, and I thought I'll go back to when he was 17. So Nights in Berlin, he's 17. Uh, the next one was um, Afternoons in Paris. He really did live with a family in Paris and learn French. And Uncle Lasting shows up again. And then the last one in this series was um, Mornings in London, which is just before the first one, the very first one, the 30s. He's living with Nan. He was worked in for real as a designer of very uncomfortable furniture, very oh. chic, very elegant. And he chucked it to become a painter. And I thought, enough. And it's a good thing because Mysterious Press now just does reprints. Oh, okay. And Mysterious Press, Otto Penzler, who was the great distinguished uh, mystery editor, was the only one to want to buy my book. So I, I took, you know, that's maybe a good time to end. I've written a lot. I've said probably what I want to say. I'll write short stories and paint, which is pure joy. What, uh, what about nonfiction? We, we, we haven't really talked much about um, I've done a number of books. I did a history of Hampton. I did um, a volume on Connecticut history, which was part of a new series to update the old Yale one. It was called Preachers, Rebels, and Traitors. It was wonderful. It was the uh, Civil War period. So I had the coming of the Irish. I had abolition. I had the start of the women's movement. I had the start of unionization in Connecticut. It was a great period. And then I did a book called Women on the Move, which I did in three months. Macmillan was doing a series of little paperbacks aimed at the high school trade. They had one, um, The Golden Age of Greece, you know, Rome of the Caesars. They got this whole thing done. This is in 76. And they had not a single word about women. Mm. Not a single word. And I had written a scholarly article, which was, um, it was kind of notable. It was called The Treatment of Women in United States History Texts. And by the way, I should point out, not to interrupt, but you were actually criticized in Alvin Toffler's Future Shock because of that article. Well, he did put me in his uh, notable books or something, yeah. so I couldn't He called complain. you a dangerous woman. If you go back and look at <laughs> no, that's not a joke. If you I remember that book. It was, was it like a new agey thing? Sort yeah. of. It's like the Bible for the Newt Gingrich right. I, oh, I, okay. That's a, probably why I've never I, read it. <laughs> I did not realize that. Yes. I know. I knew it was mentioned, but anyway. Yes, you were called um, a dangerous woman by, by Alvin Toffler, who went on to inspire Newt Gingrich, so you could... Oh, right. well, that's probably right. a badge right. of well, highest compliment. Yeah, there. I know. I should get a t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> from, from Alvin, who's but, dead, I believe. Um, anyway, they called me up, and they said, we want a book on the British women's suffrage movement. 
which I didn't know a lot about, but it was very, very influential, very dramatic. People were force-fed. They were thrown in jail. People were beaten up. It inspired Gandhi. Gandhi was in um, England at that time, saw these mass rallies and said, aha. Uh, it was very interesting. Contagious Disease Acts, early women's ed. It was a gold mine. And it was wonderful. I thought I did a good job. They put a readability scale on it and brought it down to, I think, fourth grade level. You know, it wasn't quite, see Mrs. Pankhurst agitate, agitate Mrs. Pankhurst, <laughs> but almost <laughs> your dad's of kids learning English when they came into humanities loved it. <laughs> yes, because it was, yeah, see, see Mrs. Pankhurst. But it was a shame because that they got wonderful illustrations. And it was really ahead of its time. There was nothing else. I was just going to say, you know, as a librarian, you're way ahead of your time because everything's like that now. It's, you know, about, you know, uh, suffrage, the women's rights movements, the civil rights movement, what's going on now, uh, gay rights, everything. And, and yeah, it's uh, – you seem to be way ahead of your time, and I, I, I commend you for that because, um, you know, even today people are so crazy about everything, you know, and I – I can't even imagine what it was like 40 years ago. Yeah, don't be ahead of your time, though. Okay. It's not profitable. <laughs> yeah. profitable. I actually was in a band once that was a little ahead of our time. I, I, I understand. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> well, we've been talking today with uh, Janice Law. Uh, she is the author of the Francis Bacon Mystery Series that's out now for Mysterious Press. She has written, We did we settle, was it 24 books? I think 24 books, and the, the five of the, four of the Bacons are in audiobook, and the man who read them, was brilliant. He's really, really good. I don't think he compares with The Voice, but I will take your word for it. <laughs> well, The Voice is in another category altogether. Uh, how many Anna Peters? Is it six Anna Peters? Um, eight. 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 Eight, eight, eight Anna, Anna Peters. Peters. Then Anna. I had one other mystery novel that was a standalone, and then The Bacons. It's a lot of books. It's a lot of books. The making of many books is a weariness of the flesh, says Ecclesiastes. And with that, we are out of time. But we want to thank you so much for coming along. Thanks, Jim. Thank you, Jim. Well, thank it. you. And thanks for moving all those boxes in my house, too. <laughs> I really appreciate that. Uh, guys, we'll be back with a fresh show, actually. Um, we recorded a show at The Dial that is going to air next week. And then uh, we've got some stuff in the can that's going to be coming up for August. And then our next Pills of Community Books live show is with uh, Lee Lingma. Lingma. And that will be at The Dial on August 19th, am I correct? 16th. I, I, I don't know. Third Thursday in August. Third Thursday in August. So, 16th, I believe. With that, I want to thank you for listening to I-94. You are listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM. Hey, have a great Sunday wherever you are. We'll see you next week. I-94 is Lumpen Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured the works of author Janice Law, with Afternoons in Paris out now from Mysterious Press. This episode originally aired on July 22. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit EYE94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com.